God is the ruler of this world, and we can be thankful that God, who is the ruler of this world, also makes himself known. We are in a portion of scripture this morning that emphasizes the point that God makes himself known. In verse 8 of this portion of scripture, we read that, But when Elisha, the man of God, heard the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me. Now these words, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. That he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. How does God come to make himself known? Well, this morning we're going to see a chain of events and the people to whom and through him God makes himself known. The chain of events and the people to whom, through whom God makes himself known. First, God makes himself known to us as we read the scriptures. It's essential to our understanding of this narrative that God is behind the events that were transpiring in Israel and Syria. Look at verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man and his master in high favor because by him, now here's the statement, the Lord had given victory to Syria. That's the opening thought. And that is basic to the understanding of this entire passage. The work of God, the Lord, had given victory to Syria. It's necessary for us to understand that it is God who was at work in defeating Israel and bringing victory to Syria. This wasn't simply the act of a powerful army. This was the act and will of God. It is God's doing... And that brings an important perspective to the narrative before us. And it helps us to understand the important perspective that God is at work in all things, even as we saw last week. All things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God has a purpose. God has a will that he is achieving in this world. It is through the reading of the scriptures that it is made known to us that God was behind the defeat of Israel and the victory of Syria. If it were not for the scriptures, if it were not for this statement that's found in verse 1, we would not know that it was God who gave victory to Syria. Certainly the history books wouldn't reveal it, as we would read the particular point in history that we are in, in talking about the conflict that existed between Syria and Israel and how Syria won a great victory and Israel experienced a great defeat, I can guarantee you that it's not going to say because of what God had done. The only way that we know that is as we read the scriptures. And so it's so important that we read the scriptures for it is the scriptures that reveal to us the God who is at work. 
The more we read the scriptures, the more we see what God is doing in history, the more we understand what God is doing today. What's also important for us to realize is that the Syrians did not know, did not understand that they had gotten the victory because of God's enablement. They were attributing the victory to their army, and in particular, Naaman. They didn't understand that God was behind this. They didn't understand the sovereign God. They didn't know who the God of Israel truly was. So that had to be made known. So how does that come to pass? How is that made known? Well, there's a a chain of events that brings this to pass. First, God makes himself known to and through Naaman. So who was Naaman? First, he was the general of the Syrian army, verse 1. And I'm just going to read, for the sake of time, the particular portion of um, these verses from which I get these points. I'm not going to read the entire verse. So in 2 Kings, verse 1, it tells us that Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Syria. And it's through his leadership that Syria gained a great victory over Israel. It tells us in the middle of verse 1, because by him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. It was by him. It was by Naaman. However, that victory came through the Lord's enablement, as we have said, because by him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. And as the narrative opens... Naaman is the one who's getting credit for Syria's victory as a wonderful military commander. As a result of the victory over Israel, Naaman gains notoriety. So as we look at how Naaman's described in the text, as we already said, he's described as the commander of the army in verse 1. He was an important individual and influential with the king. The king listened to Naaman. It tells us that he was a great man with his master. He was an advisor. He was a counselor. He was looked up to. Third, the king, like Naaman, liked Naaman and was inclined to help Naaman in any way that the king could. For it tells us that he was in high favor. And then Naaman is brave and an honorable warrior. Or it refers to him as a mighty man of valor in verse 1. But it also tells us that he had a hideous disease. Or at the end of verse 1, it tells us that he was a leper. So in summary, we have a man of great power, influence, and notoriety who has the king's ear and to whom the king is desiring to do favors and who is needy. He's a leper. So how is God going to make himself known? to and through Naaman. Well, God makes himself known to and through a little slave girl. Now we're introduced to a little girl, a girl that's going to bring news of a prophet to Naaman, verse 2. Now the Syrians on one of the raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. This girl is placed by God 
into a situation where she can have impact on Naaman's life through his wife. I say that she was placed by God into a situation where she can have an impact on Naaman's life through his wife. For notice in verse 2, it says, Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. This girl had not intentionally gone on a missions trip to Syria. She was there against her will. She was there as a result of the raids that had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. Nevertheless, God had sent her on a mission strip. Now remember, verse 1 tells us it is the Lord who gave victory to Syria. Keep that in mind. That's how this whole narrative starts. And so, by extension, these raids are a part of that victory. These raids are the product of the wars that are taking place between Syria and Israel, and it is God who is giving the victory. There go, it is God who ultimately is responsible for sending this girl into the land of Syria. Because God is making himself known. God sends this girl to Syria to make himself known. She ends up in the service of Naaman's wife, which is no accident. It's a purposeful part on the part of God. This little girl is clearly a girl of great faith. For she believes that the prophet Elisha can cure Naaman on, uh, of an incurable disease. Verse 3. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Now this statement of faith, he would cure him of his leprosy. He could do what no one else could do. He could cure an incurable disease. Now how she came to faith, we are not told. Why she believes that Elisha is able to do this, it's not revealed. But what we do know is not how she came to faith, but the reality of her faith. And the fact that she has not lost her faith in God despite her own circumstances. Now think about it. She has experienced the defeat of her nation. And in the particular period of time in which she lived, it was the common thought that the God of the nation, who was victorious in battle, was the superior God. And so since the Syrians had won the battle, it was thought by most that the God of Syria was greater than the God of Israel, but not her. But not her. She was torn away from her family. She was carried off into a foreign land, and she was made to be a slave. How she must have wondered, why did all of this happen to me? 
She doesn't know. She doesn't understand why she is there. She cannot see the invisible hand of God's providence, but we can. But it's important to realize that she can't. She can't. And though she cannot answer the reason why she is there, she had not lost her faith in God. And this little girl is a compassionate young thing. She feels for the plight of her master. She is not angry or bitter towards him. Notice verse 3. She said to her mistress, Would my Lord were with the prophet who's in Samaria. If only he were in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. She is not vindictive towards her captor, but she's gracious. She is not happy or pleased by Naaman's trouble. Rather, she is moved with pity for him. As Paul R. House, in his commentary on 2 Kings, he says this, Despite her captivity, she is not bitter or unhelpful. Rather, she shares what she knows about the Lord and the prophet out of concern for Naaman and her mistress, and a desire to see God's glory magnified. In this way, she acts like Daniel, Mordecai, Ezra, Nehemiah, and other exiles who care for the spiritual and physical well-being of their captors. This was the way in which God works. So with tenderness, she makes a remark to Naaman's wife, verse 3. She said to her mistress, Oh, would that my Lord were with the prophet who's in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman believes what the girl says, verse 4. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. Now we know that Naaman believes because Naaman reveals when Naaman comes to Elisha what Naaman believed when he started his journey. In verse 11, when Naaman is standing before Elisha, well, when he comes to Elisha's house, verse 11, it says, but Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought, talking about what he thought when he left the land of Syria, but I thought that he, that is Elisha, would surely come out to me, stand upon, <coughs> call upon the name of the Lord's God, wave his hand over the place, and now notice these words, and cure the leper. And cure the leper. So when he left, he was in full expectation that he was going to be healed. There was no doubt in his mind. When he started this trip, he believed that he was going to be healed of his leprosy simply because of what this girl said. Simply because she said, there is a prophet in Israel who can cure you. On the one hand, Humanly speaking, it's remarkable to say at least that this great military leader would pay any attention to what this little girl has had to say. Everything was working against her. She was a foreigner. She was a slave. She was a little girl, referring to her age. She was a female who, in that society, and have a lot of respect and honor. In a similar vein, in his commentary, Long notes the contrast between the great man and the maid who told him about this prophet. 
She is an Israelite. He is an Aramean. She is a little maiden. He is a great man. She is a captive servant. He is a commander. He has fame in the king's estimation. She has none. She simply waited upon Naaman's wife. Uh, Naaman's wife. So we look at this and I think we have a tendency to marvel. We should marvel. But on the other hand, we find that it is not remarkable at all, but rather it is normative in the way that God uses people of little influence to reach people of greater influence. This is the normative working of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and following, it says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you who are wise according to worldly standards, not many who are powerful, not many of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God chooses people of no influence to reach people of greater influence. Application, first of all, you don't have to be a celebrity or a sports icon to be a person with great influence to share your faith in Christ. You don't have to be a celebrity or a sports icon. But in our society, I think a lot of times Christians think, you know, if only we could get a celebrity, only if we could get, you know, the, the quarterback who is a believer from, you know, the uh, Super Bowl, if he could come and share his faith, man, what an impact that would have, wouldn't it? Kids would just flock to him. If we could just get somebody with some notoriety, some influence, this girl had no influence whatsoever. There was no human reason why she would be believed or heeded. It's because there's a God who is at work. And when people come to faith, it is always because of a God who is at work. It's not the notoriety of the person that is sharing their faith. God uses the lowly things to confound the mighty. God does so to reveal his power and glory. So we should understand this is a display of God's marvelous providence. This is a work behind the scene and is only understood by faith. It should give us great confidence and boldness in our own witness. How often it is that we feel that no one will heed us. Who are we to share our faith? Why would my boss listen to me? Why would my college professor listen to me? Why would someone else listen to me? Who am I to share my faith? You're a child of God for whom God is going to work. And it's not because of who or what you are. It's because of where God has placed you. God makes himself known through us. And we're to bear witness to him, to the people with whom we come in contact. And as it answers to a degree for this girl, why 
this happened to her because she is there to be a witness to Naaman. So too, it answers in part. It's not the whole answer. But it answers in part of why certain things happen to us in life. It's to bring us into contact with people that otherwise we would not be brought in contact. Think of when you're in the hospital of people that are now in the range of people that you can witness to that were you not in that circumstance, you would not be in their hearing. But now you are in a place where you can share your faith. And so the next time that you are wanting to ask the question, why did this happen to me? Well, part of the answer is so that I can make God known. Next, God makes himself known to and through the king of Syria. Naaman believes the girl and seeks the king of Syria's help. Verse 4, so Naaman went in and told his lord. That's referring to the king. First he tells the king what the girl said in verse 4. Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. The king gives Naaman permission to to, uh, travel to Israel. Verse 5, the king of Syria said, go. Furthermore, He will write a letter to the king of Israel on behalf of Naaman, verse 5, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And still further, the king of Syria will pay what is necessary to finance the trip and to pay for the request to be granted by the king and the prophet. Verse 5, starting at the middle. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. A great deal of money. And the letter containing the request for Naaman to be healed of this leprosy is sent to the king of Syria. Verse 6, when this letter reaches you, uh, that I may have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. So now God is made known to and through the king of Israel. The king of Israel read the letter, verse 7. And when the king of Israel read the letter, next The king of Israel read the letter, and he is distraught. Or it tells us in verse 7 that when he, the king of Israel, read the letter, he tore his clothes. He is distraught. He was distraught, for the king of Israel was helpless to fulfill the request. Notice middle of verse 7. He tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man stands word Sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Am I God? In essence, he is saying that he's being asked to do something that only God can do. Now, don't miss out on that that statement. Am I God to kill and to make alive? Only God can heal this leper. This is God making himself known. For when that leper is healed, what does that say? What should that mean to this king? He's already declared himself that only God can do this. So what is the implication when God heals this leper? This king should know. He won't exercise faith, 
but he will become accountable. He will have heard about God and who he really is. So the king of, of Israel reasons that the request is not a sincere request. He believes that the king of Syria is not expecting Naaman to be healed. Rather, the king of Syria is only trying to start a fight with the nation of Israel. End of verse 7. Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. Now maybe the king of Israel is right. Maybe that is what the king of Syria was up to. That is no good. Maybe he really was trying to pick a fight with the king of Israel. More likely, it's simply because the king of Syria wants to do Naaman a favor. He wanted to make his commander happy, not dash his hopes. But either way, the king of Syria will be faced with proof that there is a prophet in Israel who represents the true and living God. We find out later that it's clear, and I'll point it out, that the king of Syria doesn't believe either. So why the king of Syria does this, other than simply the fact that he wants to please Naaman, we don't know. But we are to understand that God is at work, and God is revealing himself to the people of Syria and to the people of Israel. It's noteworthy that the king of Syria sends Naaman not to Elisha, but to the king of Israel. It's not the king of Israel who can heal Naaman. It's Elisha. But he doesn't send him directly to the prophet. Sends him to the king instead. This is the work of God. This is God making himself known. This is God's intervention in a chain of events. So now God makes himself known through the prophet Elisha. News of the king's despair reaches Elisha, verse 8. And Elisha said that the king has no reason to despair. Verse 8. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Elisha says, Send Naaman to me. I'll take care of the problem. I will take it off your hands. End of verse 8. Let him now come to me. Elisha relates that there is a purpose in all of this. End of verse 8. Let him now come to me that he may know that there's a prophet in Israel. Elisha views Naaman's presence as an opportunity to prove that there is a true and living God in Israel and that Elisha is his prophet. Elisha understands that God is making himself known. Well, Naaman finally encounters Elisha, starting at verse 9. Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. Naaman is angered that the prophet does not meet his expectations. He is disappointed, to say the least. And there are a number of things that disappoint him. First, 
Naaman thought that at least the prophet would show him the respect and courtesy of meeting him personally. But Naaman doesn't even get the chance to talk with Elisha face to face, verse 11. But Naaman was angry and went away. Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me. He didn't come out to him. He sent a servant out instead. Naaman thought that the prophet would pray to God and stand and call upon the name of the Lord as God. And Naaman thought that he'd be immediately cured at the end of verse 11 and cure the leper. So Naaman views it as a waste of time having traveled so far, verse 12. Are not Abana and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could not I wash in them and be clean? Why in the world did I come here just to bathe in the Jordan River? You've got rivers back home. This is a waste. And so he goes off in a huff, turns around, and he's going to leave. However, his servants reason with Naaman that he was, has nothing to lose in following Elisha's instructions, verse 13. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a good word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? Think about what he said. He said, if you wash, you'll be clean. That's what you came for. Aren't you going to do what he says? God is making himself known through these servants. These individuals. And God is making himself known to these servants themselves as they witness, as they see. All that is taking place. You see, we are to understand the the branches that are coming off this trunk, what God is doing in Naaman, he is doing for the nation of Israel. He's doing for the nation of Syria. He's doing it for so many people. Naaman follows the instructions of Elisha, verse 14. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And Naaman is healed. The end of verse 14, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. But God not only transforms Naaman physically, but also spiritually. This time, Naaman comes into Elisha's presence, verse 15. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. Naaman makes a bold declaration of faith in God. He comes to realize that there is no God comparable to the living and true God of Israel. Notice verse 15. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and and he came and stood before him and he said these words, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. He comes to know that there is no God in Syria 
like the God who is in Israel. He comes to understand that this victory that he got was not through the Syrian God, it was through the God of Israel. He understands the implications, not just for himself, but for the nation. He understands who this God is. And furthermore, Naaman, from now on, is going to be the worshiper of Jehovah. Verse 17. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servants two mules loads of earth. Why in the world does he want two mule loads of earth? Because the earth was presumably for the purpose of building an altar to worship God. Exodus 20, 24. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings, your peace offerings, your sheep, and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. He is going to worship God. And now, most significantly, Naaman is committed to exclusively worshiping the true and living God. Look at verse 17. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to you, your servant, two mule loads of earth. And now this reason, for from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. This is very significant. For the Syrians, like so many cultures, worshipped many gods. They had a plethora of gods. Gods of thunder, gods of fertility, gods that ruled over all different things. And what Nathan, excuse me, what Naaman does isn't simply add the worship of God to the long list of gods that he already would have worshipped. He makes a bold declaration of monotheism. He's going to worship a single God. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. Out goes all the others. For he now knows there's one God who reigns over all the earth. There is no other. He wants it clearly understood that when he, what uh, that uh, he wants it clearly understood that when he is doing his service to the king, he personally not will be worshiping a false god. Verses eighteen and following. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there. leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon, when I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. May the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. Ramon was the national god of the Syrians, 
He's also known as Hadad, the storm god, a common figure in many ancient Near Eastern pantheons. Later, he became identified with Zeus, with the Romans. He wants it made known that when he does the service of the king and when the king asks him to bow, he's bowing as a servant of the king. He is not bowing in order to worship this false god. What is striking to me is that Naaman assumes that his master, the king of Syria, will not be converted, will not embrace the God of Israel. Now think about it. This king of Syria heard what the girl said. This king of Syria writes a letter to the king of Israel saying, heal this man, though he doesn't really believe that Naaman can be healed. Now, Naaman is healed, and there's no question about it. I mean, he goes back, and his skin is completely changed. I mean, you can see it. (laughs) It's right before your face. And yet, the king of Syria isn't going to believe. At least, Naaman doesn't expect him to believe, for he says, when I come into the house and the king's going to worship Ramon, then pardon me. This is how we know, when I said earlier that the king of Syria did not believe when he sent Naaman to the king of Israel, or certainly Naaman didn't believe that he believed. Which teaches us an important lesson, and that is this miracle will not bring all people to faith. They don't believe, not everyone believes, that Elisha is a prophet of God. I don't know if any or how many of the servants of Naaman who told him to go duck himself in the Jordan River, I don't know how many of those believed or didn't believe. Uh, The miracle... doesn't necessitate or doesn't assure faith. What it does assure is that all of those people are more accountable. All those people are without excuse. For God has made himself known. God has revealed himself, not just to Naaman. Not to just the slave girl, but to the king of Syria, to the king of Israel, to the servants of Naaman. And right down to this day, to us, as we read this account and hear 
this narrative. We should not be surprised. For for we are told in the New Testament that if they won't believe the law and the Moses, neither will they believe though someone be raised from the dead. If you won't believe the word of God, the miracles aren't going to do it for you. And I point out to you that Naaman believed all the way back when he first heard the word. And it was manifested in his travels and his standing before Elisha and his obedience to all that Elisha told him. The king of Israel will be accountable for he said, am I a God to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? This king that said only God can do that now has to face the reality. What's he going to do with that reality? It appears that he just ignores it. It appears it has no impact. The rest of this passage I'm going to deal with next week. So in conclusion, what are we to learn from this? Well, that through a chain of events, God is making himself known. To a servant girl, to the king of Syria, to the king of Israel, through Naaman, to the attendants of Naaman, Naaman's entourage, and even to us today. God makes himself known to a greater or lesser degree. Some people will believe and some people will believe not. Now the issue is not how many people we lead to faith. The issue is, do we make God known to the people with whom we come in contact? Or every time we make God's name known, we make those who hear it more accountable. Listen to the Romans 12. 19 and following. Behold, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So whenever anything untoward happens to you, whenever you are mistreated, whenever you are treated with injustice, whenever somebody does something to you that is wrong, including ending up as a slave in a foreign country and under their command. When that happens to you, don't take vengeance. Don't try to get even. Romans 12.20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, Give him something to drink. Paraphrase. If he is a leper, cure him. Meet the needs of those that oppose you. Then listen to the end of Romans 12, 20. For by so doing, you will heap coals of fire on their head. 
which is a poetic way of saying you are making them more accountable. You are revealing God to them. And that is our role. Our role is simply to make God known. Tell people about God. And that should be our highest priority. And we should see the activity of God, even in the things that we don't like, even in the situations that are hard for us, that God puts us in the situations of life that we are in for the simple reason, not the only reason, but a simple reason of making himself known. For us being able to bear witness to the God that we love and the God that we serve. Some will come to faith, some will not. The issue is not for us how many come to faith. The issue is, but have we made him known? Have we declared him? Have we told others about him? We can rejoice that God is making himself known. And we can rejoice that God isn't just in the work of lives individually, but collectively. We are a part of a much, much bigger picture, as was the slave girl. We'll never know how the influences that we have can influence even people greater than ourselves. I think of the story of Dwight L. Moody. Dwight L. Moody was a, a famous evangelist who led many, many people to the Lord. God mightily used Dwight L. Moody. But in his autobiography, if you read his story about his life, it begins about talking about his Sunday school teacher. A no-name individual who God used to bring Moody to faith. And then Moody is used by God to bring many to faith. That Sunday school teacher was a link in the chain of God's providence. We'll never know how God uses our testimony, our witness, our influence to achieve is eternal purposes. Like our, our God's at work. Let's make him known. Let's pray. Our Father, help us as we desire uh, to make you known. Help us to be faithful. And in that faithfulness, it starts with a belief, Lord, that where I am is where you have placed me. And where I am, I need to submit to you. And where I am, there are people that are needy. Help us to point them to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior from sin, the one who can help them. Lord, help us simply to speak for you, and you, in your sovereignty, will bring some to faith, and some will not come to faith, but all will be more accountable. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And as Mike comes, let me just say to you this morning, if you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior, 
Every time you hear a message, you're just more and more accountable if you don't believe in him. So give your heart over to the Lord Jesus if you haven't. Bye.